good morning. It is a pleasure to be with you all this morning. It's a pleasure to see uh, the many faces of youth and children uh, in our children's ministry and student ministries who are back from camp. Welcome back, everyone. As a former youth pastor, I always had a sort of love-hate relationship with camps, as I'm sure a lot of people involved in student ministry do. Um, As you probably hopefully know, kids, preparing for the camp is kind of a beating. It's exhausting and a huge headache. But the week of camp itself is is such a blessing. As someone who had the great blessing uh, to grow up in a church where I went to camp every year, and as someone who worked at a camp, I, I can attest to the fact that those weeks spent at camp made a huge impact on my life. Um, decisions made during those weeks and lessons I learned still stick with me today. And I, I say that as an encouragement to you students, but also to you, to parents who paid for your kids to go and to you adults who helped bring supervision and teaching and whatnot. They, those are incredibly valuable hours spent. And so thank you for your willingness to help. Um, I know it is not an easy thing to do, uh, but your service is greatly uh, appreciated by our church and praised by our Lord and Savior Christ. And so thank you for that. As we pick up our study once again in Mark chapter 10, we come to a passage that is probably fairly familiar to many of us in here. It's a passage in which we see Jesus address the issue of childhood, in which we see his, his loving and tender care brought to the forefront. As we begin our time then, let us begin by reading our passage, Mark chapter 10, We'll be spending our time this morning in verses 13 through 16. If you would, and you have the ability, please stand with me as we begin our time reading this word. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, we find these words. And they were bringing children to him, that is Jesus, so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me, do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Generally speaking, as adults, if someone refers to us as children, as in quit being such a child, they're not offering a compliment to us, are they? It's not good to be called a child as an adult, for that insult typically means that we are acting immature, we're not acting our age, uh, people are calling us to, to stop having our feelings hurt so easily, and perhaps at the root of it is this calling out of us to to quit being so dependent upon others. Act like an adult for once. It is an insult that strikes at our inner independence. And incredibly, it's an insult that's not limited simply to adults, is it? For if you listen to children get in arguments, they have the exact same insult that they oftentimes give to each other. They, of course, do not call each other children, for that would be a bizarre insult. But what do children oftentimes call one another? Babies. Quit being such a baby. And, and while the, the terminology is slightly different, the insult is basically the same, isn't it? The child is, is telling one of their peers that you're not acting like a big kid. Grow up. Quit 
being such a tattletale, quit getting your feelings hurt, start acting a little more independent like I act as a child. This is an insult then that we can hear from the lips of children as well as adults. And in both cases, regardless of the age, the insult remains basically the same. The insult is questioning our independence. It's questioning ultimately our value to the group. And the reason why it is such a popular insult is because it it strikes something that we all would love to be true about ourselves. For we all want to be seen as as mature. We equate maturity with with independence. We equate independence with with success. And we all like to believe about ourselves that that we are independent, that we are self-reliant, that we are valuable resources to society around us. And while we are quick to assume that about ourselves, we are also quick to assume lesser of those around us. We are quick to point out when other people are not mature. We are quick to point out when other people fail to to maybe pay their part. We do this because this is what society says. This is how society identifies true responsibility and true adulthood, independence, and success. And we assume then that if we are to be proper citizens, we must prove ourselves time and time again to be independent. And yet as we look at our text today, as we consider the mistake of the disciples and the rebuke, the sharp rebuke of Christ, we will see that this passage pulls that assumption out and and really questions it. And what is revealed to us in this passage is that behind that that obsession with independence, behind that common insult, lies a very common but very dangerous sin of conceit. As we examine this sin today then, as we consider what it is that Jesus is commanding of us, we will look, in essence, at at three different pictures, three images presented in Mark chapter 10. The first image, the first picture is of conceit. The second picture, that which is praiseworthy, is a picture of childlike dependence. And finally, the final picture we will see is this picture of our glorious king, as it is a reminder of his own rule and a reminder of how foolish our conceit, our pride is. We begin then with our first picture, that of conceit, but before I do, let us begin our time in prayer so that God might continue to bless this time of worship. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for all that has taken place, not already this morning, but also throughout this week. We praise you for the fact the gospel has been presented time and time again to the children and students of our congregation, God. And we pray, Father, that the seeds planted might ultimately bear fruit, God. We thank you, God, for any professions of faith that were made. We praise you, God, for any significant decisions that were made. And we pray that the students and children who are on those camps might remember those decisions, might remember what they were taught for years to come. And we also thank you for the many adults that were involved in planning and executing that that ministry and pray that you bless them for their service, God. As we begin looking at Mark once again this morning, this morning, Father, we, we pray that you might remove all distractions from us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you might be at work revealing our own subtle sins of conceit, revealing where we fall short. And we pray, God, ultimately you might use this morning to remind us all of what a true disciple looks like, what a true citizen of the kingdom looks like. And in turn, might we all strive to to put into practice that which is commanded here, God. I pray for any unbeliever who's here this morning who does not know you, God. Might this be the morning in which they hear the gospel clearly. Might they see their need of you. Might you bring them to that point of confession of faith and save them, Father. 
We love you, God, and we praise you. Bless this time now, we pray in Jesus Christ's name, amen. As we begin our text, as we begin looking at the story in verse 13, we begin with that first picture of conceit. Now, of course, since we already read the passage, and since many of you are familiar with the story already, you come into it already knowing that the disciples are entirely wrong in their rebuke. The disciples are foolish, the disciples are sinful. But if we're to really understand the sin that lies behind the rebuke, if we're really able to appreciate the subtlety of the sin, we must, at the beginning, attempt to slow this story down. For we have to understand that the events recorded here in Mark chapter 10 were events that would have happened very quickly. This is a very small window of time. But in slowing it down, hopefully we will see exactly what is driving these disciples. Slowing the story down, down then, we can recount the, the basic event as it's recorded by Mark. As he begins in verse 13 of chapter 10, we have this image of, of likely parents, perhaps older siblings, and these individuals are attempting to bring their little children before Jesus. The language here does not suggest that they're looking for a healing from Christ. Rather, they're simply looking for a sort of blessing that Jesus would place upon the heads of these little ones. Now, this is not something we commonly do today, of course, but for Jews in that day, this was a regular tradition. And in fact, you can see this sort of activity throughout the entire Old Testament. Anytime a, a patriarch offers a great blessing upon their children or grandchildren, you, for instance, can find it if you look back to Genesis chapter 48 when the great patriarch Israel does this and offers this upon his own children and grandchildren. And so as the parents are attempting to do this, they are simply seeking out that which is regularly commonplace. But prior to them even being able to ask Jesus for a blessing, as they are simply approaching Jesus Christ, the disciples see their intentions, understand what they're doing, and they immediately cut them off. And they do not simply say, you know what, Jesus is tired, let him be, maybe some other time. The disciples cut them off, it says, with a rebuke. They rebuke these parents for bringing their children for, before Christ, and they send them away. The question we, of course, have to ask is why would the disciples be so harsh in their response? Why in that moment would they feel it necessary to cut off this attempt and to send them on their way. What does this reveal about the disciples? Well, as I already mentioned, what it reveals is a conceited heart. And as brief as this moment is, it shows us two underlying beliefs or assumptions these disciples clearly had in mind. The first of these assumptions, one that would have been common in their day, is that children across the board are entirely insignificant. Children are unimportant. They bring little to no value to society. Now, that no doubt hopefully sounds harsh to most of us in here, but the disciples would not have been alone in this belief regarding children. Children were routinely viewed as, as a waste, as leeches. You hear of, of how cold people's attitudes were towards children, when you listen to the words of a letter that has been found and dated back to 1 BC, in this letter written by a husband to his pregnant wife, the husband offers these 
fatherly words of advice regarding the impending birth of their child. There the husband says these words, if, if it is a male child, let it live, but if female, cast it out. Very short, very succinct, and very harsh, incredibly cold. And yet what's incredible here is that this would have been a, a common view of childbirth, of bringing children to the family. This husband, this father, was simply saying that which would have been common in that day, and that is children bring, again, very little value, particularly in the short term. As the husband makes clear, if it's a son, in the long run, he can bring some favor, some value, but if it's a daughter, well, she's not going to bring anything into the picture, and so you might as well just cast her out, let her die. These are the words of a father. This was the attitude of so many in that day. Children, it was assumed, brought very little value. And so if you're a disciple and you see these unimportant figures approaching Christ, figures who are not asking for a healing, not asking Jesus anything that would demonstrate his power or authority, you naturally say, okay, you know what? Jesus' time could be spent better elsewhere. He's tired, he's a busy man, let's just send these little figures off. They respond in the moment with their popular cultural understanding. On top of that underlying belief regarding the insignificance of children, there's of course a second belief. That belief being that the disciples, unlike the children, were very significant. They viewed themselves as incredibly important and valuable to the overall kingdom of God that Jesus was inaugurating. This is, of course, nothing new to Mark chapter 10. If you remember back in Mark chapter 9, an event that was probably just a matter of weeks before this event, the disciples are caught having an argument amongst themselves about who is the greatest disciple. These are the same disciples that routinely misunderstand the teachings of Christ. These are the disciples that came out of very common, common uh, jobs. And yet these disciples immediately, routinely got caught up in just how important they were, how significant they were. This belief comes out very quickly in Mark chapter 10, for we see that they rebuke these kids, these parents, without any acknowledgement of Christ. These disciples clearly view it as their God-given responsibility to be the gatekeepers of Jesus, to be the ones that offer entrance before the Savior, before the King. And so it is clear, yet again, these disciples while they view the children as entirely insignificant, view themselves as incredibly important. For they're adults. They bring value to the table. We see in this, then, a clear spirit of conceit, of egotism, one that thinks little of others but thinks very highly of the self. And who, of course, would be foolish to believe that the disciples are unique in the struggle. For we understand this is the natural tendency of of all of humanity. We see it obviously here in the Gospels with the disciples, but read throughout the rest of the New Testament and you see a warning against this type of sin consistently. Paul writes against this basic sin in his letter to the Corinthians when he reminds them time and time again of the necessity of humility. Do not think so highly of yourselves. Paul says the same thing in his letter to the Romans. And incredibly, even when writing to the Philippians, a, a church that is solid, a church that is doing well, Paul still speaks and writes to this basic theme, the importance of remembering to always put the needs of, of others out of yourself. Always think of those in need. The point we can take from all these passages, then, is that we all are naturally prone 
to think far too highly of ourselves and to look down upon others that we view as, as relatively insignificant. We could name a number of ways that this subtle sin of conceit rears its ugly head in our own lives. But for the sake of keeping it consistent with our passage, let us just consider the ways we think of children today. Obviously, I think all of us in here would say, we are for children. We are pro-children. Hooray! We love kids. Even as a church in our vision statement, we include children in our vision as we say we exist to make disciples amongst the next generation. And so on paper, in theory, it, it looks like we all love kids and we're not doing anything that resembles the arrogance of these disciples. And yet so oftentimes, if we were to listen to the way we speak of kids, I think sadly the same view of their insignificance comes forward. For even as we speak of how great kids are, in our culture oftentimes we do not speak of how significant they are here in the moment. We speak of their potential. And we look at a kid and we, think, and we say, think of what they might accomplish someday. Think of what, might they, what they might do for the kingdom someday. Think of what job they might have someday. And without meaning to, we're communicating that in the present moment, these children, they really offer very little to us. Someday they'll be valuable. In the moment, eh, not so much. To give it even more specific application, think of the way we oftentimes respond to the request of helping serve children. Say, for instance, in the church setting, children's ministry. I do not say this as a, as a heavy-handed approach to get you all to volunteer, but I say this because this comes up frequently, doesn't it? So oftentimes we hear the call and, say, and we hear someone say, we really need help with children's ministry. And what do we say? We say, ugh, I could never serve kids. I don't have the patience for it. I mean, God bless the people that do, but that is just not for me. Well, even if you're not the most patient person in the world, what are you saying? You're saying that your service really isn't necessary. Someone else will fill in for the kids. Someone else will do it. But quite frankly, it's a waste of time. I heard this all the time as a youth pastor. All the time I would hear people say, you work with youth. Good for you. Teenagers are just terrible. I don't know how you do it. I could never work with a teenager. And while they were attempting, I think, to compliment me and thanking me, they were oftentimes revealing in their own heart that they have no concern for that age group that they view it as glorified babysitting. Someday those kids might grow out of it, but for the time being, they're really more of an annoyance than anything else. Truth be told, oftentimes, we can all fall into this category where we look at certain groups of people, certain demographics, and we assume that they are in some way worthless. They are below us. They are not deserving of our time and our talents. As tragic and as foolish as this is, it is falling just in line with the action of these disciples. Like them, we oftentimes are prone to think lowly, to think little of those beneath us or that are beneath us in our culture, and to continue to insist that we are significant, we are, impo we are important. And so doing, we, like the disciples, are revealing a spirit of conceit, revealing a spirit of pride. And what we must see in this passage is that as, as blatantly obvious as it is to us to see, again, this was just a brief moment in passing. The disciples would have had no clue of their conceit. The disciples in no way preemptively planned this out. This was something that happened in the moment. It was a knee-jerk response, and yet it reveals so much of what dwells within. As we continue on the text, what we understand 
is that this revelation is not simply that the disciples have a slight misunderstanding of children, although they do. No, from Jesus' response, what we will see is that these disciples are not just misunderstanding the value of children, nor are they misunderstanding their own selves and their own spiritual status. These disciples are revealing a lack of understanding of the gospel itself. This is why, as we move on to the text, we see Jesus respond in such a harsh manner. Again, look at the text with me in verse 14. Describing the response of Jesus, we read, But when Jesus saw this, when he saw them rebuking these parents, he was indignant. And he said, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. As we move on in our text, we move on to this second picture. Not a picture of conceit, but a picture of childlike dependence. And in this picture, in these words of Christ, we find a message that quite frankly is shocking And we cannot miss how shocking this message would have been, especially in this original context. For you see, as Jesus rebukes the disciples, he could have said a number of things. Jesus could have easily said, hey, guys, lay off of them. This is a good opportunity. Let them come. They're just kids. It's not important. Right, Jesus could have, could have said, guys, at least ask me first if I'm able to see other people. Jesus could have said so many things, but Jesus responds with this, extreme, with this extreme statement. In response to the disciples, in essence, pointing at the children and saying, no, they have nothing to do with the kingdom. Jesus says, no, they have everything to do with the kingdom. In fact, you have to look like this if you're ever going to get into the kingdom. You have to act, you have to be, you have to become like a child, Jesus says. And the question in this statement, of course, is well, what does Jesus mean? Again, in our culture, it's so easy to misinterpret this. And, and some people will assume Jesus is speaking of some childhood innocence, some vague sense of, of purity that children had, some, some standing that they naturally had before God that, that qualified them immediately for entrance into the kingdom. But that simply isn't the case. For understand, children are just as sinful as all of us are. Jesus is not saying little children are pure and perfect. No, when Jesus says that we need to become like children, he is putting his finger, he is pointing at exactly that concept of childhood that made them so despicable. He's highlighting their utter and total dependence upon society. And he's saying that. That is what it means to be a child, and that is what you have to be if you will ever enter the kingdom of heaven. By pointing his finger at this, Jesus is quite simply saying, salvation only comes to those who understand their complete dependence upon Christ. A haughty spirit God will not accept. A prideful mindset cannot enter into the kingdom. For the sake of conversion, for the sake of salvation, you have to understand you are entirely dependent upon God in the same way that a child is entirely dependent upon their caretaker. Just as a child brings nothing to the table in terms of what they can offer to the family initially, we as believers bring absolutely nothing to the table in terms of our salvation. We bring only filth and sin and shame, nothing more. This message 
is, of course, surprising to anyone unfamiliar with Scripture. And yet we understand that throughout both the Old and New Testament, this theme of, of total dependency upon God is, is consistent in all pictures of salvation. You hear it even back in the Old Testament when God speaks to Israel concerning why he chose them. Hear these words in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. We have God addressing his people, the Israelites, through his servant. And in speaking to his people, God offers these words in Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. There we, there we can read, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord has brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. The point made to the Israelites there in Deuteronomy and time and time again is quite simple. And that is, God did not choose you, Israel, because he was impressed by you. God did not survey the world and say, you know who's going to be a really good nation someday? Israel. I got to get them on my team. God never said that. Now, in fact, the text says it was quite the opposite. God knew Israel was weak. They were small. They were entirely unimpressive. And it's in light of that that God sets his love on them. God chooses them. They become great purely as a result of God's grace. The same idea is carried into the New Testament as well, of course. In the book of 1 Corinthians, you hear Paul using very similar terminology to describe the Corinthian calling and our own calling. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says this regarding the Corinthians and ultimately us. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, that, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those which are strong and base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. It's a humbling message to hear, both to the Corinthians as well as to us today. But the same message is is consistently true for all of us. At the point of conversion, God does not save us because he is impressed by us. God did not save you because you're smarter than other people. God did not save you because you finally stopped being a baby about everything. God saved you because you were a helpless child. He saved you because you were sinful. You were an enemy, and yet he set his love upon you. And it is purely a result of that love, purely a result of that grace that we're brought into a proper relationship with him. We enter into the kingdom of God then, as Jesus says, only when we understand this. And this makes sense when you consider the many other doctrines tied to our salvation. When you consider things like repentance and faith, those, those actions that we do in response to the grace of God, both of, both of which speak of our dependence. For what is faith other than putting our trust entirely in Jesus? What is repentance other than turning completely away from our sin, acknowledging we are nothing, we are hopeless without God? And it is those things that we do, it is those things we confess when we come to Christ. Many of us hopefully know this already, we understand this, and yet how oftentimes do we quickly move past this understanding of our dependence upon Christ? How quickly do we grow past that dependence and start viewing ourselves as, as independent, as impressive, 
How quickly do we begin looking down upon those who are younger in the faith and say things like, oh, they'll learn someday. Someday they'll grow up and become as impressive as I am. Someday they'll be talented like I am. But we must understand that when Jesus speaks of this quality necessary for entrance in the kingdom of heaven, he speaks of something that must remain true of us for all eternity. For we understand that that even post-conversion, we are always constantly, entirely dependent upon Christ. We can do nothing on our own. And so you see great models of this throughout Scripture. Consider these great heroes of the faith that we lift up. People like David in the Old Testament, a man after God's own heart. People like Paul in the New Testament, writer of so many of the letters of the New Testament. Women like Mary, other great heroes. What do they all have in common? Well, in part, they have that that proper understanding that they are nothing apart from God. Constantly, when you hear of their prayers or read their words, there is this statement of, of who am I, God? I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I do not deserve this, and yet, God, you are so gracious. You can read this if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 when David responds to the covenant God gives him. David, the man after God's own heart, a, an incredibly godly man, and yet David recognizes, I'm nothing, God. Who am I that you would show such grace to me? Paul even in the midst of, of being this great apostle, even in the midst of writing so many letters, describes himself as the chief of sinners. He understands he is nothing. He is but a vessel, and God's grace is working through him. Mary, when told that the Son of Man, that the Messiah would be born through her, speaks in similar ways of, who am I, God? I am nothing. You are everything. Time and time again throughout Scripture, as well as throughout church history, you, you see that our heroes of the faith understand this dependency. And you see that regardless of how big they became, how successful they became, how mighty they appeared to be in the eyes of others, they always had this proper understanding of self, that they were nothing but children before their Savior. And that moment by moment, they were entirely dependent upon Christ. We sang this truth in multiple songs already this morning. We sang this truth when we spoke of being the most vile, the weakest. We sing this truth regularly. We see this truth in Scripture. And yet again, how often do we forget this, brothers and sisters? How often do we subtly allow that pride and that conceit to creep in? To look down upon others. To assume that God saved us because we somehow deserved it. No, we must take the warning of Christ seriously. For as Jesus makes clear in his rebuke, this is not simply a minor misunderstanding of our humanity. This is a misunderstanding of the gospel itself. He could not have stated it any more passionately than he does in verse 15 when he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not ever enter into it. Never. We must be very careful then to keep that proper mindset of dependence to remember that this is who we are forever if we struggle with this and we all do if we struggle with conceit if we struggle keeping that pride at bay thankfully in this passage we see the cure we have one final picture that that really does cure us of any sense of conceit that cures us of pride it is a picture not just of children but a picture of christ unless we become filled up with pride, let us again, once again, see a picture of the reign of our king, the rule of Jesus, 
in verse 16. For having offered that sharp rebuke to the disciples, we read this account. Mark chapter 10, verse 16. And he, Jesus, took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Having rebuked the disciples for turning away these children, Jesus does something that again is utterly shocking and would have been shocking to those present as well. For not only does Jesus offer a blessing upon these children, he takes them into his arms. This isn't some impersonal pat on the head. This is the loving touch of a father who cares for his kids. And again, in this brief picture, there is so much that can be gleaned regarding the nature and authority of Jesus. Speaking to his authority, speaking to his rule, we see yet again Jesus presenting himself as the unchallengeable king of the kingdom. This authority is is somewhat subtle and easy to miss. But again, consider what Jesus is claiming about himself in this picture. For having seen the disciples turn these kids away, Jesus immediately compares it to preventing people from entering into the kingdom. Jesus immediately brings in this picture of conversion. Jesus immediately tells them, I am the one that defines the necessary qualifications of entrance. Me, me alone. There's none of you that can challenge this authority. I am the one that makes these decisions. And to enter into the kingdom here is equated with coming into the presence of Jesus. His authority is clear. It is striking both in the rebuke as well as in the words that he offers. But of course, as we come to verse 16, we understand these are not the words, this is not the rule of some tyrannical ruler who is simply humiliating his disciples. Now these words come from a king whose grace is beyond our words, whose mercy, whose kindness, whose gentleness is beyond anything we could possibly imagine. For again, we see in this picture that Jesus does not simply allow parents to bring children into his midst, for that alone would be gracious. No, Jesus gathers them up in his arms. Jesus joyfully embraces these children, treats them as his own, offers them this tremendous blessing as he lays his hands on them. As incredible as this image is, it should not surprise any of us who have been with us throughout the study of Mark, for this is is what Jesus does. This is how Jesus responds. But again, as we become familiar with this, we must not ever lose a proper sense of awe for this. For here we are not simply seeing a teacher who is graciously taking care of his, of his students. We see the Son of God, the incarnate Word, the one who speaks creation into existence, the, the one who, who defeats death itself. We see the King of all creation before whom someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And this King is not above taking up children in his arms and and caring for them individually. That's incredible. That is beautiful. That is Christ. And if we are ever prone to think too highly of ourselves, surely this image of our Savior will, will cure us of that pride, for Jesus himself is not above serving children. 
Jesus himself is not a, above showing grace to those who, who supposedly bring no value. Jesus sees these children and understands them to be exactly who they are, and that is precious image bearers of the creator who are not just potentially valuable, but are infinitely valuable even in this moment, who deserve care, who deserve consideration, who deserve love and kindness. And thus the story comes to a quick ending. Again, as we consider all these things, as we consider the view of conceit, as we consider what it looks like to be dependent upon Christ, and as we consider again the rule of our king, we must be careful to not pass by this lesson too quickly. For as we already saw, the the sin of conceit, the sin of pride, is so incredibly subtle, brothers and sisters. And it comes so naturally to every single one of us. If we are not daily killing off that pride, it will inevitably creep into your heart. And even though you might not be aware of it, just as the disciples were unaware of it, it will come out. And it will cause us to say things that are so blatantly against the gospel that they would cause our Savior here in this context to respond with great anger, with great frustration. And so as we close considering all of this, let me first speak to those of you who are with us who who do not know Jesus Christ. My prayer is that as you see Jesus revealed in this passage that you might see that he is unlike anything or anyone else. In every other religion, you, unbeliever, will be told, do this, this, and this, and if you do all these things and check off all the lists, maybe God will show you his favor. If you prove yourself enough, someday you'll be worthy of Jesus. Christianity comes in and says just the complete opposite. It acknowledges that you are inherently wicked, that you are sinful, that you are desperate for life. And this image reminds you that if you simply submit to Christ, if you simply recognize that you are entirely dependent upon his service, if you place your faith in him, repent of your sins, you are saved. Regardless of your past, regardless of what you did 12 hours ago, you can be seen and treated as a pure child of God this morning if you simply place your faith in him. But again, remember that you must do so for he is king and someday you will submit. I pray you do it this morning. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us remember that we never move past our complete dependency. Let us remember, just as Paul says, that that not many of us are wise, not many of us are strong, not many of us were impressive by any means, but God chooses us because we are weak, because we are sad little creatures, so that he might be glorified. Let us take proper humility in that fact. Let us rejoice in Christ's absolute and loving authority. And let us in turn be quick to encourage others to approach Christ, never driving them away with our own pride, but always pointing to the grace and goodness and kindness of the Savior who awaits them if they just submit, if they just fall upon him. I pray that is true of all of us this morning. That being said, let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, God, as we come before you, there is... There's so much more that could be said about your grace. Yet again, God, I am left speechless considering this image of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, we praise you for your kindness. We praise you for your grace. And we recognize that all of us are no better than the children pictured in this passage. All of us are utterly, entirely dependent upon you. And we praise you for the fact that you respond in grace, that you respond in love if we simply come before you in submission. But God, we confess that we are so quick to to fall into that conceit. We are so quick to think so highly of ourselves, to look down upon those that surround us. It comes so naturally to us, God. It comes so quickly. God, break us of that sin. Might we never be so foolish as to prevent someone else coming to Christ because we are so caught up in our love of self. But might we daily be in awe of the grace and authority of of Jesus Christ. For those here who do not yet know you, Jesus, might they be awestruck by the love and kindness seen in this passage. Holy Spirit, open their eyes to see that truth. Cause them to to see their need of Christ and bring them to a saving faith in you. We praise you, God. We thank you for saving us while we were still helpless and we thank you for sanctifying us daily for we know we are daily helpless without you. Holy Spirit, might you cause us to continue to grow up in the faith. Might we become mature in our faith. Might we strive to to do great things for God but as we do those things, might we never forget that we do them entirely by your power. We praise you, God. Might we be known now as humble servants, as children of you, children of our great and gracious King. It is to your praise and glory we pray all these things, Jesus Christ. Amen.